Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. This week is the Sunday of the Passion, Passion Sunday, the Sunday before Palm Sunday, two Sundays before Easter. And we are today turning another page in our story, and we're turning towards the cross, the passion and crucifixion of our Lord. For those of you who are usually with us, you'll see quite a bit has changed around here. We have veiled the icons and the statues and the crucifixes with, um, with purple veils. Normally you would see all of uh, you'd see Jesus, our Lord, his blessed mother, all the saints throughout the church, but those have all been covered up. And traditionally for the next approximately two weeks, the crucifixes and images will remain veiled through this mini season of the year we call Passion Time. The crucifixes, the images of our crucified Lord on the cross stay covered until the end of the celebration of the Lord's Passion on Good Friday. And the rest of the icons stay veiled until the Gloria of the Easter Vigil. The crosses are veiled in part because of St. John's Gospel that we just read, which concludes with Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You also notice we, we got out our more simple candles, all symbolizing this veiling and this Jesus hiding himself and going out of the temple, but really these are opportunities for us to remember that these things are here, right? We're drawing, we're also drawing attention to them by covering them up. You come in here all the time. You look at them, and yes, they're beautiful, but you get used to them, right? And so it's good for us to have some attention drawn back to them and remind ourselves of that we'll, we'll, we miss them when they're not here. Of course, the icons, the depictions of the saints, as our church teaches, are not only meaningful in that they point to, they are only meaningful in that they point to Christ. So if Christ is hidden, so too the images of the saints must be hidden. And on Good Friday, we will first unveil the crucifixes to remind us that we're at the nadir of our church here. When on that night, we see that God, who is high above everything, has also humbled himself to become man for us, to die for us, to be like us in every way save sin, and ultimately face the consequences of our actions as mankind, even though he didn't deserve them himself, and to save us through his death because he loves us more than we can even imagine or understand. And that's why we call that day Good Friday, because it is so good. Jesus will have truly taken on everything it is to be human, save sin, as I said. And the, and the saints, though, will remain hidden until the Easter vigil when the light of the resurrection, who is none other than Christ, illumines them again as he illumines all of us. But in the Easter vigil, after having taken on everything we are to save us, he will recreate us, refashion us again, to be in his image and likeness, in renewed, resurrected spirits, minds, and bodies. 
other actions in the season a passion tied to accompany this veiling to bring further attention to it and emphasize it. For example, we leave out the minor doxology in several places. That is the glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if you found yourself like, did Stephen just forget? No, he didn't. He was doing the right thing. But it gets a little confusing. And so if you feel a little confused, that's okay. We'll try to re- try to get through this together. Uh, but we even forget sometimes and we do when we you know lead and we do this every year. So but they do keep us mindful of the uniqueness of this time of the church here. Two weeks ago, you may recall that we heard the healing of the deaf mute by Jesus, after which the Pharisees accused him, right, of casting out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And Jesus replied to them with one of his most famous sayings that every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against itself falls. If Satan be divided also against himself, how shall his kingdom be saved? And this week on Passion Sunday, the Pharisees are at it again. But they've actually amped up their rhetoric. Now they don't say that Jesus is just casting out devils by the power of the chief devil. Instead, Today, it culminates them in saying that Jesus himself is possessed by the devil and then picking up stones to kill him. As always, it's good to take a step back in the story, get some context, and figure out where we are. Today's gospel is found at the end of John chapter 8. But if we head back to the beginning of that chapter, and I'm not going to read through everything, uh, but it but I recommend you maybe take a look at John chapter 8 this week. The first event that happened on this day is an event we talked about a little bit, especially if you were here at the Mass of the Annunciation, because on Annunciation, we happen to have the last gospel for the Saturday of the third, um, the Saturday of the third week in Lent. Well, I think I mentioned at that time that Lent is a very special season in that there are actually propers, which mean things that are proper to the day. They're, they're the things that are, that are specifically set aside for that day. Most days of the year do not have proper material. The Sundays do, the feast days do. But all of Lent, the entire season of Lent is unusual in that there are proper readings and proper uh, prayers for those days. But anyway, the reason we bring, I bring that up is that on the day that this event is happening, the first thing after Jesus wakes up that we hear about on this day is that last gospel that we read. And we talked a little bit about it then, and I'm going to talk about it again for those of you who might not have been there. But that is that the scribes and Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman who's supposedly been caught in the act of adultery. And serendipitously, we heard that uh, Saturday before last. But let me remind you about how this story is curiously connected to the healing of the deaf mute and to today's story. Now, first, you, you might have noticed that I, I said that this woman was supposedly caught in the act of adultery. Say that for a couple reasons. One, under Jewish law, the man engaged in adultery was also supposed to be subject to the same punishment. And if they were caught in the act, they didn't get the guy? Something seems a little strange there. Okay, maybe he got away. But there's other reasons we should be really skeptical of what's going on here. 
that this is really probably just a setup by the Pharisees. And so the reason is, is that even though Jewish law prescribed the stoning to death for those caught in adultery, the Jews, as you know, at this time were under Roman occupation. And thus, the Jews can't carry out their death penalties, even for their own laws. This was not allowed, uh, even though they could do a lot of their own legal stuff. And adultery was not a capital crime under Roman law. So even if Jesus says that she should be stoned, then it isn't going to happen. It would be illegal. And then he's going to be in trouble with the Romans. Now, of course, they could get a frenzied up mob and take a legal action, just like they were just about to do to Jesus in the story, right? Which is ironic. And then they, or, or like when they killed the martyr Stephen, right? They just got in a, a mob and just stoned him to death. But, so this is a no-win situation. Seems like it's a no-win situation for Jesus. If Jesus says to stoner, then he's going to be breaking Roman law, and that's going to be definitely the end of him. And if he says not to, then they'll claim he doesn't take the Jewish law seriously. And I will point out, too, that this story ties, obviously, when we think about it, to Jesus' passion and crucifixion. Because, again, the, the, the fact that, that this woman cannot be stoned is this very same reason that Jesus cannot be crucified by the Jews. They have, well, why they can't stone him themselves for blasphemy. Instead, they have to get the Romans to crucify him for something under Roman law that's not okay. And that is ultimately, right, the claim that he's the king of the Jews. That's, that's against Roman law. That's capital punishment under Roman law. Okay. So they have to accuse him of being the king of the Jews, uprighting his rightful authority of the Romans to install and depose their king. And I'll give you one more reason to be skeptical of this story, that it's just some kind of setup the Pharisees have for him. And that is, in Jewish law, in Deuteronomy 17, 6-7, right, things require two witnesses for someone to be accused of a capital crime. And again, this ties back to Jesus' passion and resurrection, right? Because if you remember, they, they couldn't find two people to agree on anything that Jesus did wrong until they finally like, basically found two men willing to lie, to bear false witness that he had said, you know, I'm going to tear the temple down and build it back up, right? That's how, that wasn't exactly what he said, right? Not only were they like willing to lie, but they because they didn't really hear it, and then they make up this thing, and it's not quite what Jesus said. Sort of like Satan in the garden. Um, so anyway, this, that, that's specifically condemned by the Ten Commandments too, false witness, right? So here in this event, Jesus is saying, with the woman caught in adultery, where are the witnesses? Who, who are the two people? That's what he's saying when he who without sin cast the first stone. Where are the witnesses? And why? Because according to Deuteronomy, the, one, the witnesses are the ones to cast the first stones. They're the ones that are first to be upon those convicted, followed by the hands of all the people. So therefore... Bearing false witness is also a capital crime. And so Jesus has turned the table on them. No surprise there. 
God's pretty smart. And, um, and, and while he's asking this question, this general question, it, it's really, again, quite specific here. He's calling out the fact that they are false witnesses. They didn't see what happened, and therefore they have committed a capital crime just like this woman. They are convicting themselves. And I pointed out on Annunciation that you, in this account, which again I recommend you read, this thing happens, right? They start asking Jesus to condemn this woman, and he bends down and he writes with his finger in the dirt. And that connects to what I was, that's the story of the deaf mute, right? Where in that story of the deaf mute, it talks about the finger of God. And we talked about the, the, you know, the very few places that phrase happens. One is the parable, not parable, the, the healing of the deaf mute, the writing of the, uh, the, the uh, magicians of, of Pharaoh when they can't recreate Moses' thing, saying that the miracle was done by the finger of God. And then um, God himself writing the tablets on Mount Sinai for the Ten Commandments. So here Jesus bends down and writes in the dirt. Finger of God, right? It's not said, finger of God, but that's what's going on, right? And he stands up, and that's when he says, you know, let the, you know, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Then he bends down again and he writes again. And there are all kinds of speculation about what's going on here. But I, I, I believe the strongest argument that is that Jesus is bowing down, bending down and writing the Ten Commandments in the dirt. He writes the first tablet. He stands up and says, he who without sin cast first stone. And then he writes the second tablet, which will have the false witness, Right. That's going to be on that second tablet. And at that moment, when he's done writing that out, right, the people turn, turn away, walk away, one by one, until all but Jesus and the woman are gone. So that connects us to the deaf mute. It connects us to Jesus' passion and resurrection. And now, of course, here's Jesus with this woman. And whatever happened, right, Maybe she was an adulterous woman, but it doesn't matter at this point because there are no longer two witnesses. Even if Jesus knows he's a witness, right, because he knows everything, they're not two anymore. And, of course, God is merciful and just tells her, go and sin no more, which he could say to any of us, right, whatever happened to us. But whatever happened, they're now no longer two witnesses. She, she can't be convicted if anybody wanted to under Jewish law and then again, not even under the Roman law. So he's, he's gotten out of this trap. And if Jesus is indeed, again, writing the Ten Commandments in the dirt, he's claiming divinity, right? He's claiming, I'm God, here I am, writing the tablets. And that is then how this ties again to today's gospel story. Because what is, so what, then, so then what does Jesus say to the Jews? Who convinceth me of sin? Who is convicting me of sin? Where are your witnesses? So again, this is, this whole thing is tied together. Who are the witnesses who are going to tell me that I am not this? And what does Jesus do? He brings his witnesses. He brings in before Abraham, I am. Here's my here's a witness to, to me. 
And they're like, oh, no, you know, all this stuff, right? And then what do they do? They, they, that's a very strong claim of divinity, of course, not only because he's claiming he was alive before Abraham, but he uses this phrase, I am, I am, which is used a lot in St. John's Gospel. And that phrase, that I am, is what God told Jesus in the pre-incarnate form, the word of God, told to Moses from the burning bush his name was. I am the I am. I'm self-existent. And then what do they do? They pick up stones to kill him, right? Again, showing how much of a farce this whole episode was with the woman caught in adultery, right? Because if they... If they wanted to do it, they just needed to do it. Why were they bringing her in front of Jesus to get his opinion? If they're just going to pick up stones and, and kill him, right? This whole thing, this whole day is a huge farce with the Pharisees. All right. So that sets you some background. But in between that first story and this story, there's also some other interesting stuff. So following the, the episode of the woman called in adultery and then the start of our passage, in verse 12 of chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And continuing with this theme of false witness, we have already noted, this is how the events continue. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. In other words, you only have one witness and it's you. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I do not judge alone. I do not judge alone, but I am the Father who sent me. Two witnesses. At this point, Jesus reminds him, reminds them, that in the Jewish law, the testimony of two people is true. And then says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus is saying there are two persons bearing witness here, he and the Father, but they don't see the Father. So then they ask, well, where is your Father? And Jesus replies, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. So they want to arrest him again because this is also a claim of divinity. But St. John says, no one did so because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus continues in this way, and again, I, I hope you'll read through this and, and think through what's going on this. And in this time, you know, he, he claims authority to forgive sins. Again, a divinity claim. He talks about what he's seen with the Father. Again, these, all these claims of divinity. That, and this is why they're getting all frenzied. He's blaspheming in their eyes. And they're going to pick up these stones to kill him. And that's where our gospel passage starts to take shape. When in verse 39, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, do what you've heard from your father. And they answer, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, well, if that were true, then you'd be doing the works Abraham did. And we know, we know what Abraham did. We heard it in morning prayer. He worked by faith. He did so by faith in God. And they wouldn't be trying to kill him for saying the truth he heard from God. And then they, then they change their mind. No, no, we have God as our Father. And here Jesus says, no, you, call, you say, I have a devil. You guys, your Father is the devil, who's a liar by nature. And then he brings it back again to this, who convicts me of sin? In other words, who are your witnesses? None of them, of course, right? Because as Jesus says, they're the children of the devil. And in fact, 
are only false witnesses as they continue to accuse him. And just as we see in his trials and crucifixion, by not knowing God, they cannot hear the truth of what Jesus is saying. For example, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So instead of listening, they continue not to be open to God. Their hearts are closed. They continue to accuse him of bearing false witness about himself and blaspheme by claiming he's God again and again, here again, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So they pick up stones to throw, but all they do is pick them up. They don't execute their plan, at least in part because Jesus hid himself. And one more little aspect of this false witness theme is that today's exchange occurs between Jesus and it says people who believed him. Because if we look back to verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What did they answer? We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So those even who believe in him are not willing to accept his truth and to trust him. But rather, we bear false witness to who Jesus is by continuing our sin, by bearing false witness to others about who he is through our sinful actions that others witness. And this is how we learn what this passage is really about, which is us. And as we're, Lent is almost over, today's message is to wake up again. Because even if you're making good progress, I know you still have work to become more Christ-like. And so how are you going to achieve that? Well, I hope you'll continue to succeed in virtue and fasting and prayer and love of neighbor. And if you've gotten slack, that's okay too. That's why way back in Septuagesima, and as we'll hear in the beautiful sermon of St. John Chrysostom on the Paschal Sunday, we bring back that, that parable of the workers in the vineyard that come at the last hour and get paid the same who came at the beginning. If you've gotten slack, just start working in the vineyard again. Start tending to your vines. And because the good news is that the victory of the cross is going to come regardless of what we're doing. But if we're willing to repent and start today, then we will be able to begin to bear the cross, to bear the wood that Isaac carried up that mountain in a type of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Be able to bear that cross we, and Jesus tells us we have to take up our cross and follow him. And we've got to do that to be victorious with him when we get to Easter Sunday. So with these two weeks left, and when I ask you to ponder right now how you're going to be more open to what God is trying to tell you, that when you hear God's word, instead of saying, no, no, it's this way, no, let's listen to God. How will you be transformed? How will you break your habit of denying Christ? How will you stop picking up stones to throw at Christ? How will you not bear false witness to who Christ is through your words and actions? Will you be the ones next week 
at Palm Sunday, well, after Palm Sunday, during Holy Week, yelling crucifying as Pilate tries to release him. Will you be the ones running in fear from Golgotha and hiding in the upper room? Or are you going to stand at the foot of the cross with St. John and his blessed mother? Let's find ourselves at the foot of that cross, that cross that stands veiled today, realizing that we can't just look at it. We have to carry it. We have to put it in our heart. As the saints stand veiled, realize that you have to be like them. You can't just say you believe what they believe. You have to be transformed like they're transformed. And we're called to be, and we're not going to be perfect at this. We're going to continue to fail, and the church is here to help us. And we're blessed to know the rest of the story, and we know that Jesus kept his word and proved his claims, that we can trust in him. He is the light of the world, and whosoever follows him will not walk in darkness. So follow him, and you will also have the light of life. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.